Amen. Prayer in time of distress. So when you're distressed, go to the scripture and pray it. It's okay to pray the word back to God. It's his word and God honors his word. And you can be assured that you're praying according to God's will when you pray his word. Amen. Let's go for the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you this morning, first of all, for your grace, for being with us today. We thank you for your mercies, Lord, which are uh, renewed every morning. Lord, we thank you for the work of Christ on the cross. We thank you, Lord, for rescuing us from the domain and dominion of darkness and translating us into the kingdom of your heavenly light. And Lord, we thank you for making us fit to share in the inheritance of the saints. It is such a glorious time, Lord, to be in the house of the Lord amongst your people, those whom you have redeemed from the hands of the enemy. Lord, we just want to take a little time this morning to pray and thank you for uh, this day that is celebrated in our nation, a Mother's Day. Lord, we pray, first of all, for mothers that we may know personally, uh, mothers that may be in here, mothers that may hear this, but also, Lord, mothers who are not in this congregation, uh, those who are grieving this day. This day is a tough day for moms who've lost their children, either through miscarriage or moms who murdered their, their children in their wombs through the sin of abortion. And Lord, also mothers who've lost their children to suicide or to car accidents or to domestic violence or whatever the case may be. This is a, a indeed tough day for them. And Lord, we ask you to look upon those moms uh, this morning. And Lord, there are those uh, in here and who may hear this and those out in the world who have lost their mothers. Uh, some, for some, this is the first Mother's Day without uh, their mothers being with them. For some, it's the 10th or the 20th. But I'm sure the sting is still there, that they wish that their mothers were here. So, Lord, we pray that you be with them. And, Lord, we also have those of us who, uh, people who, who don't have good relations with their mothers, uh, that this, this may be a day of contention uh, for them. So, Lord, we pray that your grace be with them and that they are able to pursue uh, reconciliation. But Lord, we just thank you for moms, period, uh, who give birth to children, who bring them into this world. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of motherhood, uh, though our culture uh, hates motherhood. Our, our culture wants mothers to, to murder their children and, and wants to believe, wants us to believe that men could be mothers too. Lord, that is so insane uh, that our world is, is uh, seeking to do away with the distinctions that, that you yourself created. Lord, we thank you for all moms everywhere. We thank you for the moms in here. Uh, they're such a blessing to our church and a blessing to their children and to their families. So Lord, we Thank and praise you for our mothers, and may they continue to be good mothers to their children as best they can, that you reward their faithfulness in raising uh, their children. Uh, they will receive that reward in the end, Lord, that they just be faithful to their call as moms to uh, be nurturers and nourishers of their children. And, Lord, we turn our attention uh, to Christ and his finished work on the cross. Lord, we thank you for the testimony uh, of those of us who believe that, Lord, you have ransomed us from the bondage of sin, that you've given us new life, and that you've equipped us for service. Lord, we honor your name because of your transforming power in our lives, calling us out of darkness into 
your marvelous light. Lord, you put a new song in our mouths, a song of perpetual praise to you. Just as we were singing this morning, we were uh, beholding our God who is seated on his throne and no one else can compare uh, to you. Lord, we sang a song that you are our shepherd and that you lead us. Even in the darkest valleys, Lord, you're with us. You would never leave us nor forsake us. And Lord, we also sing praises to Christ being ours forevermore. That not only is Christ ours, but Lord, that we are his also. We are his children by faith in you. And Lord, we thank you for the work of the indwelling spirit who transforms lives from the inside out. Lord, we rejoice in the assurance that our sins have been forgiven. Lord, we're profoundly aware of our eternal indebtedness to Christ that, that we can never pay back our sin debt to Christ. He paid an incomprehensible, unfathomable price to set us free from the bondage of sin. And Lord, we know that we are free indeed. Lord, we are free from the enslavement to the law. We're liberated from the bondage of sin. We have been set free. The shackles of sin are no longer on believers. So, Lord, we ask you to enable us to stand firm in that freedom. As Paul said in Galatians, stand fast in the freedom where Christ has set us free and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage to sin and bondage to the law. Lord, safeguard our hearts and seal our deliverance so that we may never again be subject to any bondage of slavery. And Lord, we know that apart from your gracious empowerment, all of our attempts at godly life and godly love and godly living and faithful service are futile. They are empty. Apart from the Holy Spirit's enablement, we could neither honor Jesus as Lord. We could never do it. Lord, apart from the intercessory work of Christ, we know that we will fail and we falter. We thank you that Christ mediates for us, that Christ intercedes for us, that Christ prays for us that Christ is our advocate father we thank you because without that Lord we will not be able to stand before your throne I will not be able to pray before you as I'm doing right now Lord apart from the grace that you give us to persevere we will surely fall away because we are so weak in and of ourselves and Lord apart from the purifying power of your word we can never be fit for heaven Lord we thank you for these glorious truths of the gospel message. We thank you, Lord, as we read in our responsive reading this morning, that we can go to you in times of distress. That we can ask you, Lord, not to rebuke us in your anger, nor chasten us in your hot displeasure. But, Lord, we can plead for you to have mercy upon us when we are weak and to heal us, Lord, when our bones are troubled. When our souls are greatly troubled, Lord, you can deliver us and you will save us for your mercy's sake. Lord, grant us more grace to be diligent in our duties, to be faithful in our devotion to Christ, to be faithful in the work of the gospel, to be clear in our testimony to the world, to be steadfast in our defense of truth, and to be untiring in our service and devotion to you. Lord, may all of our conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Lord, may every aspect of our lives bring honor to you as our Savior. And Lord, as we pray and preach this morning this message, one of the greatest phrases in the Bible, but God. Lord, I pray that you be with me, fill me with your spirit to preach this text this morning. And Lord, send your spirit 
the indwelling spirit to illuminate your truth to us this morning so that we can see, Lord, that the greatest message that this world has is but God. Despite all the darkness in the world, despite those who are dead in sin and their trespasses, but God. Lord, be blessed by what you hear and what I preach this morning. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Speaking of but God, let's turn to Ephesians, the second chapter. I don't have any slides with any principles on it this morning. We're just going to we're going to spend a few Sundays just in these first couple of verses. Uh, this is part one. Uh, this morning. Whenever I see but God. Man, it fills me with joy. And I pray that as we. See this this morning. As we hear it, as we hear what God say to us. That we see the same. Thing. That God wants us to see. That he is rich in grace and mercy. Despite man's sinfulness. Despite the sinfulness we see around us. God is still rich in mercy. He is still great in mercy. There's no sin. That can outstrip God's mercy. Not one. So let's look at. I'm going to start at the first verse of the second chapter again. I did uh, last week. So this is Ephesians 2. Beginning at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. I can turn to my Bible and I'll be able to get it too, right? <laughs> Let's see. Here we go. All right. This is the reading from the New King James Version here. It says, And you he made alive. This is read from verse 1 again. Who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you also walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God. But God. Who is rich in mercy. Because of his great love. Notice the focus on his and he. But God who. Who is referring to God. Is rich in mercy. Because of his great love. With which he loved us. Even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us to sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You notice the emphasis is on God and what he did and how we respond to that. We're recipients of what God has done. Okay, he made us alive. We didn't just become alive ourselves. It was because of his mercy and grace. His great love made us alive. He raised us up. He made us sit together. But God, part one. I was wrestling with how to start this sermon. And I was really wrestling going, man, you know, I, I can start in so many different places. But on the heels of last week when we and the week before last, when we looked at the first four verses about being dead and spiritually dead and what that meant, the implications of that. Walking according to the course of this world, we talked about the world, the flesh, and the devil being our enemies. You know, walking according to the course of this world, giving into the, the, the sinful desires of the flesh. Okay? And then being under the rulership and dominion of Satan. That is what we see in our world. We have ample evidence of sin's wickedness and the universality of sin all around us. You see it on the news. You see it on social media. Wickedness is all around us. You know, we don't need to go over headlines. But it's just a lot of wickedness around us. We, we see it. We see it every single day. And with the proliferation, that means the widespread appeal of social media, you can see everything that happens now all around the world, all the wickedness that is taking place. Not just wickedness in, in people doing things, but also wickedness in things that governments do. Okay, I was just reading an article uh, this past week about uh, some some uh, legislators were proposing that uh, the federal government pay for uh, all children that go to public schools, uh, pay for their breakfast, lunch and dinner. You know, and uh, someone is actually proposing that in in uh, the legislature up in uh, Washington, D.C. I'm like, what in the world? It's parents' responsibility to feed their children, not the school system and not the government. Uh, that's wickedness. When the government over, oversteps its, its roles, we talked about the role of the government is to punish evil and reward those who do good, to punish evildoers. Uh, bear the sword and not bear the sword in vain. It is not the government to raise your children for you. It is not the government's responsibility to feed your children. It is the parents' responsibility. You know, we don't think about that, but it's not the government's job to do that. Because if the government can feed your children, guess what? They can also stop feeding them. If it's the government's job to replace the husband in the house by telling women that you can stay in government housing as long as you have children without the father in the household because I'm your daddy and I can give you all the benefits you need so that you won't have to work. That's the government being dad in the household. That's wickedness. So wickedness can, cannot just be in the murders, the acts of murder we see, uh, the acts of uh, men dressed as caricatures of women, um, doing it in front of children, or people saying that men can get pregnant and all that stuff, and men can, you know, me and friend was watching something, uh, this, this video of this guy uh, who so-called thinks he's a woman, saying that he's experiencing his first menstrual cycle. And, uh, and, <laughs> and, you know, and I know this, but I said, I said, friend, what does a woman have to have to have a menstrual cycle? They have to have ovaries, they have to have fallopian tubes, 
that have a cervix and a uterus and also, you know, what it comes out of, that they have all that. That's not something that a man can never have. He said that he was taking estrogen, so that's why he's having it. I said, no, experiencing the side effects of medicine that's not supposed to be in your body. But that's the kind of wickedness that we see in our world that's being promoted. But God, we see this wickedness. We see people doing these wicked things. But God. And what does that mean? That means that in a true sense, fallen man is in a hopeless predicament. We talked about this two weeks ago. We are powerless to save ourselves. Remember, a dead person can't do anything. A dead person can't feel. A dead person has no will. A dead person has no desires. A dead person is just dead. They're hopeless. There's nothing that can be done. You can't walk up to a dead person in the casket and talk to them. That's necromancy, number one. But also, number two, they're not going to hear you because they're dead. Spiritually dead people, same thing. They cannot make a decision for Christ. They cannot save themselves. They are powerless and they are hopeless to save themselves. They are completely hopeless. They're completely at the mercy of God. And that, that Paul lays it out again in these first four verses. Dead in trespasses and sins. But God. So except for the rich mercy and great love of God, man is utterly hopeless. Man is utterly done. And this is such a dramatic shift uh, at verse 4. From verses 1 through 3. Again verse 1 through 3. Paul talks about the hopelessness. And helplessness. And then he contrasts that. To the marvelous grace. And mercy of God. That we find in verses 4 through 7. And this is such a great truth. God's mercy. And truth. Are the keys to salvation. It is his merciful character. Not mankind's performance. That offers a way of righteousness. We can't find righteousness in what we do, but only in what God has done. It is God. It is God's merciful character. Men are not merciful. Men are not by nature full of grace. We may through common grace or mercy sometimes, but we're not altogether merciful as God is. It is God alone who is rich in mercy and who has great love. No human being is more merciful than God. No human being is more loving than God. Only God, as Paul said, is great. But God, being rich in mercy. It is God and God alone. And it is God's mercy that leads to being made alive in Christ. There's no hope for fallen humanity. There's no way any of us can remove the depravity of our sins. There's no way that any of us can pay for our sins. We have to rely on mercy from another. Our very nature is depraved. 
there's no payment that we can make that would be sufficient enough, people, to atone for our fleshly desires, as Paul talked about in verses 1 through 3. But God, what does God do? He's, he, he's merciful and he intervenes. And he pays that price. This is what we can call divine intervention. Salvation is in essence divine intervention. God intervenes. He comes in. He takes care of man's problem. Remember, man's greatest problem is sin and need of salvation from sin. You have to get this in your head, Christian. Man's greatest malady is sin. Man's greatest sickness is sin. Man is sick with sin. And you see in society, in culture, the results of that depravity, the results of that sin. What you see on the news is a result of sin. Racism, which is basically partiality, is a result of sin. So-called transgenderism is a result of sin. Baby murder, abortion, infanticide is a result of sin. Government overreach into the lives of its citizens is a result of sin. It's a system of sin. Sin is man's systemic problem. Sin is systemic. You know, you hear people talk about systemic racism and oppression. Let me tell you something. Racism is not systemic. Sin is. Because everybody is affected by sin. Sin is man's greatest. What is wrong with these people? Sin. They need a savior. But God. They need mercy. But God. They need grace. But God. It is God who provides that mercy to save them from the spiritual death that they are in. They're doing it because they're spiritually dead. They don't understand that they're spiritually dead because their minds have been darkened. They have been alienated from the life of God. But God is the only hope for this fallen world. But God. Martin Lord Jones, uh, the great 20th century preacher of uh, uh, London's uh, Westminster Chapel. This is so fascinating. He, I did some research on him. I, I have some of his books at home. Uh, he spent eight years preaching through the book of Ephesians. I'm, I'm doing it in about uh, six months. He, he spent eight years in it. He preached 230 sermons on the book of Ephesians. And that's not a bad thing, by the way. And he, it's a commentary. Uh, I have his commentary on, on, in uh, digital format out of this book. He does a great exposition of Ephesians. But one of his most talked about sermons was on his very verse, uh, Ephesians uh, 2 and 4. And the title of that sermon was The Christian Message to uh, the World. And I'm going to read this small excerpt from it. This is what Martin Lord Jones says. He says, with these two words, but God, we come to the introduction to the Christian message, the peculiar, specific message which the Christian faith has to offer us. 
these two words in and of themselves in a sense the whole of the gospel the gospel tells of what God has done God's intervention it is something that comes entirely from outside us and displays to us that wondrous and amazing and astonishing work of God that the apostle goes on to describe and to define in the following verses. So what Martin Lord Jones is saying and what we're saying is that salvation comes from outside of us. It does not originate with us. We see in our society people who are trying to save themselves from the misery that they feel. From the misery that sin and rebellion against God brings. We talk about it all the time. Men try to, when I'm talking about men, I'm talking about man, fallen man in general. Men are trying to save themselves by downloading all the apps on their phone that they can. I read a study that said on average, people use only about six apps on their phone. On average. I probably have about 30 apps on my phone. Most of them got that little cloud thing with the little arrow if you got an iPhone, meaning you need to download it because you're not using it. I use about six apps on my phone. Twitter, Facebook, my Gmail app. I don't even remember the rest. Yeah. Oh, maybe not six. But, <laughs> but I, I, I literally only use about maybe five or six apps on my phone, but I got about 30 on there. You know, swipe screen, 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 you know. But, yeah, I am. Hey, this is confession, confession time right here. I am the chief of sinners. So the thing is, fallen man is looking for salvation in apps, in TikTok, in social media. They're looking for salvation. They're looking for praise from people to make them feel good about themselves. That's what they're doing. They're looking for a savior. And guess what? It's an empty errand. It's a fool's errand. It's never going to work. Friends, nothing outside of God will work. Understand that. Tell our teenagers that. Tell your grandchildren that. Tell your great-grandchildren that. Nothing outside of Christ is going to work. You may have temporary moments of happiness, but it's going to be fleeting. It's going to come, and it's going to go just like that. But all the fallen man is looking for salvation. But Paul is saying, but God. Salvation is not of ourselves. It is entirely God's work. And it first begins with an act of spiritual resurrection, as we see in the opening verses of today's text. But God, who is rich in mercy. So now I'm going from the but God to the rich in mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is undeserved favor. Mercy, we just read it in our psalm this morning, right? When the psalmist cried out. He says, oh, save me for your mercy's sake. Have mercy on me, O God, for I am weak. Mercy is something that you have to ask for from God. It's not something that God automatically gives because guess what? It's undeserved. 
We have to pray and ask for it and hope that God is merciful. God told Moses, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. It is God's sovereign prerogative to be merciful to whomever he sees fit. Why? Because he's sovereign. As Psalm 115 tells us, he, uh, the Lord is in heaven and he does whatever pleases him. Now Psalm 115 and 3. Paul says God is merciful. He is the one who shows mercy. He is the one who grants mercy to fallen man. Men and women outside of Christ are objects of God's wrath. But guess what? God had mercy on them. We were dead. Those of us who are believers. But guess what? He made us alive in Christ. Why? By how? By showing mercy on us. It was God who did it. And what prompts it? His mercy. He does it. He prompts it himself. God, remember, God is not influenced by anyone outside of himself. God is in and of himself. He is contained within himself. He is not influenced by anything or anyone outside of himself. God is self-sufficient. That's what I am means. He's the self-sufficient God, self-sustaining God. He is totally separate from his creation. He is not influenced. He is not persuaded by anything or anyone else outside of himself. God exercises divine prerogatives. God is totally merciful because he's merciful because he chooses to be merciful. We can plead for it. It's okay to pray for it. It's okay to say, Lord, have mercy on me. Or as the uh, Jesus gave the parable about the publican and the sinner who came up, uh, the publican rather than the Pharisee that came up uh, before uh, prayer. Then one man came up and said, uh, Lord, I thank you I'm not like one of these. But then the publican came up and said, uh, God, be merciful to me a sinner and Jesus asked his uh, disciples which one which man do you think left justified and there's the one who said be merciful unto me a sinner that was his humble prayer as opposed to boasting and giving all his bona fides saying Lord I thank you I'm not like the homeless person I'm not like the person who abuses themselves or abuses children I think I'm not like the person who goes in and and robs the banks or or you know do whatever I'm an upstanding person I have a, I have a good reputation no, Lord, be merciful unto me, a sinner. That's what mercy does to you. It humbles you. So it was God in his great mercy. His great mercy. We can't forget that he is merciful on our behalf. It was all out of his gracious character that God was merciful to those who were dead in their trespasses and sins. Our experience of salvation was totally unmerited. It was totally undeserved. No person deserves to be saved and we should never even think that in our hearts. Because what we're doing at that point, we're trying to impose things on God. When we say a person deserves to be saved, we're imposing our will on God. We're trying to persuade God. We're trying to manipulate, emotionally manipulate God. 
rich in mercy. And mercy, you know, we've been studying through the uh, Old Testament here on Wednesday nights. And one thing I'll make a point to emphasize, as I have been, as we've been studying uh, from Genesis all the way to almost the end of Deuteronomy, is the mercy of God. Because, you know, those who have this dualistic view of God, that the God in the Old Testament is different from the God in the New Testament, that's not true. We went over God's acts of mercy in the Old Testament, how God was merciful to Israel. There were times where God did punish them. There were times where God did judge them. But guess what? God was always merciful to them because he remembered his covenant that he made with Abraham. And those of us who are reading through uh, second, first, first Kings, you know, if you read the 12th chapter, uh, if you haven't read it yet, as uh, a spoiler alert, uh, you're looking at uh, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, or Rehoboam rather, Rehoboam was Solomon's son, but Jeroboam was not. Jeroboam was the king of the northern kingdom, the northern ten tribes, and, and uh, Rehoboam was uh, Solomon's son. He was the right heir to the throne, but Jeroboam had, had revo uh, revolted, rather, led a rebellion, and led the ten tribes off. But what you're going to see is all these wicked kings of Israel, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. But what you're going to also see is God's mercy is still with them. Instead of wiping them out totally, he made the promise to David that there will never fail to be anyone on your throne. And guess what? He's going to see to that that it happens. Why? Because he is merciful. He's merciful to his people. He chastises them, but he is still merciful to them. So we see God's mercy in the, and I think the Hebrew word is called hesed, H-E-S-E-D. And that refers to Yahweh's steadfast covenant love uh, and loyalty for his people, especially when Israel was unfaithful. God was most merciful when Israel was most unfaithful. God is most merciful to us when we're most unfaithful because guess what? When we're unfaithful, we don't deserve his mercy. When we're unfaithful to God, that's when he shows his mercy the most. When people are out there rejecting God, dead in their trespasses and sins, living according to the course of this world, guess what? That's when they can say, but God. Before you were saved, guess what? You were living according to the course of this world. You were under the rule of Satan. But guess what you experienced, believer? You experienced but God. Who is rich in mercy. His mercy is great. He promised to show mercy. He is faithful to faithless people. So Paul says here. Rich in mercy because of his great love. So not only does God show mercy, but he also shows love. What is love? Love, number one, the love of God is an unconditional type of love. It's not some sentimental, sappy, soft type of love God's love is best demonstrated through 
Jesus Christ. The fact that Christ offered himself up to pay our sin debt, that's love. You know why? Because we could never do it. We couldn't pay our sin debt. We couldn't ransom ourselves. We couldn't set ourselves free from the bondage of sin. In our world, you have people trying to set themselves free from the bondage of sin by doing drugs, by having promiscuous uh, sexual activity, by delving off into sexual perversion, by trying to climb the corporate ladder and get to a six-figure salary so they can get the nice uh, 4,000 square foot house in the gated community and go play golf at the country club and hobnob with the dignitaries in their local community. You have people who try to deal with their sin that way. They try to purchase their way out of sin. They try to work their way out of sin. They try to drug themselves and uh, drink themselves. But you know the thing about sin? You cannot escape its effects no matter how hard you try. You can't, you can't escape the consequences of You can't escape the condemnation of sin if you're not in Christ. But God is rich in mercy and his love is great. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Let me tell you something. There was never a point before you were saved that you loved God. You may have thought you had. Before you were saved, there was never a point where you loved God. You know, when you was a little child, if you were like me, you went to Sunday school, vacation Bible school, you learned things about God. Went to Sunday school, did your lessons, did your little review, stood up in front of the church and answered all the questions and, and everybody clapped and, and thought about how cute you looked on Easter and all those different things. But if you were not in Christ, guess what? You did not love God. You hated God. That's one of the most humbling things that people don't get who are outside of Christ. They think they love God. Because they don't say they hate him or because they're not a, quote, atheist. You don't have to be an atheist to hate God. An atheist just denies uh, that, that God exists or that there's a supreme power or higher power, some people say. But they still hate God. You don't have to be a, a fish-shaking atheist. You can just be a person who rejects the gospel call to be saved. You're a hater of God. You're an enemy of God. You're under... God's wrath as Paul said by nature a child of wrath like the rest of mankind the rest of fallen mankind you can't love God until God loves you first some of y'all look puzzled look at the verse again he says he's rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. 
It was God who set his love upon us. Think, think, go back to Israel. Deuteronomy the 7th chapter, I think. God set his love on Israel. Israel didn't choose God. God chose them to be his people. Abraham didn't choose God. God chose Abraham. That is a picture of God choosing us. We didn't choose God. God chose us. We didn't love God first. We hated God. It was God who loved us. Not that we loved him, but he loved us. It's not that we loved God. Because that would make us so special that we were great candidates for God to love us. Because, Lord, I loved you. You know, it's like when you go to a funeral of someone who you know wasn't walking with the Lord. You say, yeah, they love the Lord. Wasn't even thinking of it. Wasn't in set foot in the church. Wasn't, wasn't living right. Not one ounce. Get to their funeral and say, yeah, they love the Lord. How do you know? Are you one of his? God loved us first. Just like he loved Israel first. Just like he loved Abraham first and all the patriarchs. Just like he loved David first. We can't love God unless he sets his love on us. We don't have the ability to love God. That's what makes his love so great, man, that God loved us. That's what makes his love so great. That's what makes it so special. That's what makes it so meaningful to those of us who are saved. God loved us in the past and he continues to love us. Look at 1 John 4 and 10 as a proof text here. 1 John 4 and 10. Man, beginning at verse 7, I'll just read Reading the context of there. First John 4, look at verse 7. We're going to start there. It's to drive this point home about God's love for us. Beloved, for love is from God and has been born of God. So how can a person love? They have to be first what? Born of God. Born of God means be saved. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. But you can't know God if you're not born of God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Remember, we talked about what love is. What did God do? Sent his son into the world. That is love. That's God's love. Okay, it was manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. 
And this is the verse right here, verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God. Okay? Not that we have loved God, but that what? He loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, that means the atoning sacrifice to appease God's wrath for our sins. Beloved, if God loved us, we also ought to love one another. We love one another because God loved us. Because God loved us, we love one another as believers. We don't love one another in order for God to love us. We love one another because God loves us first. He set his love upon us. The 10th verse again says, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. We didn't love God. We didn't know what love was until we found love in God. When God set his electing love on us by saving us, that's when we saw what true love was. And then with that, you know, because what does the world say? You can't love anybody else until you love yourself first. Friends, please, I pray. I pray that you don't think that. It's so pervasive in our culture. How often do you hear people talk about self-love? Woman gets divorced from her husband and she goes on this self-love journey. Me and my friend, a oh, uh, couple of friends of ours that are like that, you know, they, they went through a divorce with their husband and all, uh, now all of a sudden they're on this self-love journey. They're on their idolatry journey, in other words. They're all about this, I got to love myself first. It's sad that they didn't feel that they got that from their husband. That's, that's sad. You can have that discussion and talk about that and work through that. But the response to that is not to go to idolatry. That's going to make it worse. Because guess what? You will never be able to love yourself enough. Idolatry never ceases. The idol will never be satisfied. The idol of self will never be satisfied. Do you understand that? Idolatry ruins those Idols ruin those who worship them. God talked about that with Israel. That's why he was so serious about that commandment. By having other gods before him. That's the second commandment. And that God can be yourself. When he says you shall have no other gods before me. That includes you. Self lover. You set yourself up to be God. You're going to be crushed by yourself. You're going to be crushed under your idolatry. Because idols always disappoint their worshipers. Just as God told Israel, you in, in, in the book of Isaiah, in his judgment against them, you hewn all this wood. You spent all this time making this statue. He was using a metaphor to worship it. It has eyes, but it can't see. It has a mouth, but it can't speak. It has ears, but it cannot hear. It has hands, but it cannot reach or touch. 
And those who worship them will become like them, empty, because idols are empty. That's what God was telling them. Worshiping idols is an empty errand. It is an empty endeavor. You will be just as empty as your idol is. So if you're not in Christ, you're already empty. And you're going to worship yourself and you're already empty. Guess what's going to happen? You're going to have more emptiness. You're never going to be satisfied with worshiping yourself and loving yourself in that sense. And when they're talking about self-love, they're not talking about, you know, of course you take care of yourself. You do good hygiene and you go around dressing well. That's fine, but that has nothing to do with this whole self-love thing. This self-love movement that we see in our nation, this loving yourself, is all about idolatry. That you don't need anybody else. You need to love yourself first. You need to look out for yourself. It's basically the whole self-esteem thing remixed. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's, that's all it is. There's no new demons. They just updated. 2.0. Self-love is self-esteem 2.0. They're like that because they haven't experienced the great love of God. Why? Because they're dead in their trespasses and sins. But God, that is the message that we have for them. Come and bow down and worship the God who is great in mercy. The God who has loved us with a great Love. He set his love upon us and saved us. And those who are lost in, in self-love and, and, and another point of self-love is self-loathing. They need to hear these words. But God. God is your God. He is the only one you are supposed to set your affections on. Not yourself. Because the thing about self-love is that I've seen enough to know. You're going to want other people to worship you. You're going to want affirmation from everyone else. You're going to want all the likes on Facebook. You're going to want all the comments on Instagram. And you're going to check them. To see who's commenting. And all the bad ones you can delete. Because you want all the affirmation. You want all the love. You want all the adoration. Why? Because it feeds your delusion of self-love. And you're going to set yourself up to be a God. To be worthy of worship. Look at me. I'm out here practicing self-love. And then you begin to feel the emptiness of that self-love, that void that's never being satiated, never being satisfied because you haven't experienced the great love of God. There's no love greater, people. 
The love that brought salvation into the world. That's why Paul is telling these Ephesians and God is telling us through this word because of the great love with which he has loved us. The love of God is the only love that truly matters. That love that saves you out of the kingdom of darkness and translates you into the kingdom of the light of his son. That love that takes you from the bondage of sin to being a slave to Christ. That love that takes you from all the empty pursuits of the things of this world and gives your life the true purpose that it was designed for. And that was to worship God and to enjoy him forever. That is what the great love of God does. It gives you your true purpose. Which is to glorify God, which is to worship God and to enjoy him and all the spiritual blessings that we looked at in the first chapter of Ephesians to enjoy that forever. That's what God's love does when he snatches you from being spiritually dead to being alive. And that is the message that we need to give to people that we know who are searching How many times do people have to remake themselves because of the failures of self-love? The idols are letting them down. You know what most children want to be now? Influencers. Now, now it's gone from influencers to content creators. You scroll some of your Facebook feed, you'll see mostly reels. Why? Because people are trying to create content. They're trying to go viral. They're trying to get their videos monetized. It used to be maybe 10, 12 years ago, they wanted to go viral on YouTube like Justin Bieber did and got noticed. That's how Justin Bieber got noticed on YouTube. And they say, no, here's everywhere starting posting, uploading videos to YouTube. Then turn to Instagram and then Snapchat. Now it's TikTok. Kids want to go viral on TikTok. I remember talking to some, some younger, uh, some uh, children in our church about that sometime last year. They said they want to go viral on TikTok. You know, that's what a lot of students did during, you know, when TikTok exploded during uh, 2020. When children wasn't in school, their parents at work. They're at home doing what? TikTok videos. Trying to go viral. Why? Because they haven't experienced the true love of God. They're looking for love from the world. That love doesn't save. And it's not real love. It's fake love. It's phony love. It's empty love. It's empty gestures. They're looking out to the world to praise them, to give them the love that only God can give by saving you from your sins, by taking you out from being spiritually dead to being made alive in him. But God. And lastly, we're going to close up with the rest of this verse. Because of the great love with which he loved us, 
the great love. How great is God's love again? It's not just a general love. It's great. Salvation is the greatest act of love. Salvation from your sins. Salvation from the kingdom of darkness. Salvation from being spiritually dead. Being saved. Being rescued from death to life. Friends, that is the greatest miracle ever. Is salvation. Why? Because we had nothing to do with it. God saved us. That's what salvation looks like. From death to life. From spiritually dead. To being alive. God is so great. His love is so great. And that is what those who are lost need to know. Yes. Are they under God's wrath? Yes, they are. But are they without hope? No. All they have to do is call out to God. Lord, save me. It is God who gives them the faith to believe. Just think about this. If it was so easy, what's saying, if it's so easy, everybody would do it. It's not that easy. But it is easy. It's an easy thing to do. But God initiates that faith in their hearts to do it. That's what we pray for. That God initiates faith in their hearts. All of us got loved ones who aren't saved. That we share Christ with them. We, you know, we see how, how simple it is to us, right? But how hard it is for them. Why? Because it's something that God has to do in their hearts. That's what we pray for. Lord, grant them faith. Lord, grant them repentance. When they hear you sharing Christ with them, may they not harden their hearts. Remember, the gospel does one of two things, as Charles Spurgeon said. The same sun that melts, wax, hardens clay. The same gospel that melts some men to repentance, hardens others in their sins. It's going to have one effect. Either it's going to melt their hearts to repentance, or it's going to harden them more in their sins. But nevertheless, we share the gospel with them. We call them to repentance. Why? Because God is so great. Mercy. And he has a great love with which he loved us. Amen. So next week we'll pick up with verse 5. And perhaps verse 6. But I want to take my time going through this passage. Let us pray before the Lord. Father we thank you for these great words. But God. We thank you, Lord, that you are rich in mercy. And that with your great love toward us, Lord, you saved us. 
you saved us from spiritual death. You, you saved us from being dead. And you made us alive. Lord, there's no hopeless fate that looks worse than those who are marching to the orders of Satan. To their destruction under divine wrath. But God. Lord, your mercy on the helpless enemies flows from your loving heart, flows from the cross, flows from the work of Christ. Lord, we have loved ones, we have family members, we have friends, we have co-workers who are under the dominion of Satan, some who are even self-deceived. Lord, we pray that you may grant them faith to believe, that you may grant them repentance, that they may see your great mercy with which you have loved us and that you may save them. Lord, use this message this morning to encourage the faithful that we may be thankful, Lord, that you showed your great mercy and love to us. But also, Lord, that you may use it to convict sinners of their sin, of their lostness. Bring them to repentance, Lord. Grant them saving faith. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.